It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. Yeah, but no pressure. Welcome to the show. Hope you're having a fantastic, self-isolating, plague-induced week. Um, it's the weekend. Uh, actually, some big news this weekend. Did you know it's Naked Gardening uh, Day? And I'll give you details later. Um, want to thank everybody for the support. We had a great live stream last night with the Patreon group. If you are not a uh, part of that group, I advise you become a part of the group. Go be a patron, just like Daniel has become. And let's see, Green and JK and Joseph and Juanita. And Terry and Teresa, and I'm just going through my list here, making sure I name as many of y'all as up. Oh, Manuel, thank you all very much for all of the support. Uh, and when you become a patron, by the way, at the PeteCallenerShow.com, uh, you can get all of the links, but you get access to the um, the live streams that we do. Uh, the show is made possible by folks like you, by patrons, but also by folks like Mattress Man Stores, uh, locally owned and operated. They've got four locations in Asheville, in Arden, and in Hendersonville. Uh, obviously, with the uh, stay-at-home orders, though, they are not allowed to be open um, as they would like to be, and so they've redone their entire website. Uh, everything that they've got in inventory, in stock, it's all at the website, so you can shop for any mattress of your choosing, whether it's the memory foam mattress. Christy and I bought one from Mattress Man years ago. Um, whether it's the uh, the inner spring mattresses. Maybe you like the natural latex. Maybe you like the pillow tops. Uh, if you want adjustable bases, they have all of these mattresses, the best of uh uh, mattresses that you can find in Western North Carolina. You find them right here at Mattress Man. Uh, they actually have the Biltmore collection by Restonic, made in Fayetteville. These are awesome beds, awesome mattresses. Obviously, the Biltmore uses them. Um, although not so much anymore because uh, not a lot of people are in the hotels, which we're actually going to talk about with Jason Sanford from Ash Vegas in a minute. Um, but go to mattressmanstores.com. Go look at the um, uh, the inventory that they have. And if you're local, you get free local white glove delivery. And they ship nationwide. So if you're not local, uh, they'll still get you the mattress. And they have the 120-day comfort guarantee, which ensures that you're going to love your mattress. Right? Uh, if you don't, then they exchange it for free for the limited time. The 120-day comfort guarantee. After all, sleeping on the right mattress will help combat stress and anxiety for optimal health. The fear of choosing the wrong mattress should not add to your stress and anxiety levels during these difficult times. So experience the difference at Mattress Man. Oh, and be sure to use the uh, the discount code RESTWELL, all one word, RESTWELL, for an additional 20% off at their website. RESTWELL, 20% off savings at mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. Boarded up storefronts warn off patrons in scenes reminiscent of the 1970s and 80s. Visitors who just a few weeks ago poured into town by the thousands have vanished and gleaming new hotels stand empty. But talk is gradually shifting towards a restart. What might a post-pandemic Asheville look like? Those words, part of an article written by Jason Sanford and Sally Keston at uh, ashvegas.com is where I came across the story. It's called The Long Road Back, a post-pandemic Asheville faces daunting return. 
and uh, Jason joins us now. How are you, Jason? How are you holding up? Are you got? Uh, I'm doing. I'm doing good. You got the cabin yeah. fever full uh, full yeah. effect by this point. I certainly do, Pete. I really <laughs> do. I've, I've been holding up fine. Luckily, I've been healthy. My wife's been healthy, but yeah, I'm uh, getting a little stir crazy here. Yeah. So I, I ask people like on a scale of one to the shining, where are you? Uh, uh, on your... <laughs> Nobody ever goes I... the full shining. I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm definitely not there. I'm saying so- I'd say I'm a solid five. Five. Okay. So <laughs> you're on your way up the mountain to the to the hotel before <laughs> right. the snow. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, first off, um, this article, The Long Road Back, very lengthy piece. You talked to a, a, a lot of people. So tell us first about just what the process was that you and Sally Keston from AVL Watchdog that you freelance with. Um, but uh, what, what was the process that you got, you guys went through? Who did you talk to? How many people? That sort of thing. Yes. Um, just a little more background to expand on the, the genesis of this story, Pete, is that, as you mentioned, this was written for... AVL Watchdog, which is a brand new nonprofit journalism startup in Asheville, and we can talk about that more if you want. But uh, I co-wrote, co-reported this with uh, this group's key reporter, Sally Keston, who is actually a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for work that she did uh, several years ago when she was working, I believe, for the Sun Sentinel uh, down in Florida, big newspaper down there. So for this look at what a post-pandemic Asheville might look like. We talked to nearly two dozen folks in Asheville, small business owners, uh, restaurant owners, uh, politicians. We talked to musicians. We talked to artists, uh, all to try and get a sense. We published the story on April 20th. So in this pandemic time, um, that seems like a long time ago. And (laughs) Things have been moving quickly, you know, changing a lot, yeah. but I think it still stands up. Um, and so, yeah, we just got on the phone and talked to all these folks and kind of broke it up into different sectors that we can talk about yeah. to get their sense of where it's going. And I do, I because you have various, uh, as you mentioned, sectors. You've got the arts, you've got tourism, restaurants and such. Um, and it's um, in talking with all of these people and and you i come across them as well business owners and stuff like the people who work in these businesses in the hospitality industry specifically and i kind of i mean i put the arts in there as well because everybody is basically surviving off of these business models survive off of tourists people coming Mm -hmm. in and you know patrons benefactors or something uh paying Mm -hmm. for their creative uh works and so uh we're all sort of in this together i understand like that that's the line right but um I don't know anybody in particularly the restaurant industry that has enough money to withstand being completely shut off, shut down for uh, this kind of extended period of time. And if they can't get the relief from these funding packages, I don't know how they come back. I don't know how they reopen. I really don't know either, Pete. You're absolutely right. And there's a I looked at a couple of uh, like economic banking reports and they take a real close look at cash on hand for different sectors of businesses. Restaurants rank the lowest with about 16 days on average of, of like liquidity mm-hmm. that, they could, that they could use. And then after that, everything gets real dicey. So, and, and as we've seen, Kate, Katie Button, the chef co-owner of Curate, our celebrity chef, has been one of the most outspoken people locally, and she's using her voice 
nationally, um, you know, the pain was immediate for restaurants and for folks like Katie Button, independent restaurant owners, and they continue to cry out for the help that you described um, for, for their independent restaurant industry. So I don't know what's going to happen, man. I think we can talk a little bit about the resiliency and how they've been adapting on the fly, which is pretty amazing to me. But if if they survive or not, I I just don't know. So, yeah, let's talk about the adapting, uh, because I saw there was a story out of Texas. Uh, I was watching, I think they're reopening or certain uh, cities may be reopening. And so uh, th- there was a restaurant that moved all of their tables outside, and then they put mm. um, markings on the ground to tell the servers where to stand so to, they can be six feet away from the table. Wow. Uh, and the, yeah, so it, like the whole floor plan has shifted. Now, I don't know what happens when it rains. You can't have everybody sitting outside in the rain. But when mm-hmm. the weather is nice, they can take advantage of whatever open space they have around their restaurant, go out into the parking lots or something. I don't know how that works in downtown Nashville, though. So how are businesses adapting? Say, let's look at like right now. I, I know what a lot of them go to uh, drive-throughs or or takeout, right? They're they're trying to get by, get some money coming in with those operations. Yep, just really stripped down staffs. It's all about, uh, ta- yeah, like you said, takeout, curbside delivery, um, and it seems like I read a quote from I think a story in the Atlantic that said the future of restaurants is food that can travel. Mm. Like that's the bottom line. Um, but in Asheville, I'm noticing as we start to see some restaurants that have closed now reopening just this week and this weekend, as a matter of fact, um, morphing into kind of half market or grocery store and half restaurant where they're preparing meals that you can take home and stick in your oven and heat up or finish baking off. But they're also selling plants, eggs, bread. Um, maybe some little pottery or art pieces from the local, you know, their local artists. That's been an interesting uh, adaptation that I've noticed, one that I keep seeing over and over now. Yes, uh, I'm aware there was a uh, there was a big um, sort of a, a well-known uh, bar and grill in Charlotte I saw just on Twitter yesterday. They reopened strictly as a grocery now. Uh, Dilworth, mm. Yeah, Dilworth Bar and Grill is a huge bar and grill and wow. yeah, now just a grocery and um, TGI Fridays. I noticed uh, they're selling cuts of meat, like a, as a yeah. butcher, um, yeah. which makes sense because the you know these restaurants are buying um, they're buying their supplies in a lot of cases, right? They bought their supplies ahead of mm-hmm. time, then everything shut down, and now you're stuck with all this inventory uh, because you were planning to turn it into food and sell it. I- I'm curious though how that how that works long term because honestly. Right restaurants the whole point of dining out is dining out right (laughs) like it's the atmosphere it's the environment it's the setting it's not just necessarily the food and a lot of food that i have gotten so far from restaurants that i've tried to help support as little as i can right now but um i've you know i've tried to support them but it's not the same it doesn't taste the same it doesn't feel the same you know it's usually cold by the time i get home (laughs) It's, it's just it's just different it is true. That's true, Pete. But if you look at the national trends, the the biggest trend over the past probably five, six years has been takeout and delivery um, for restaurants in general. I'm talking broad brush. Um, and a, there's been a lot of talk in the restaurant industry about more and more restaurants essentially turning into commercial kitchens mm. where 
they really don't serve dine-in patrons anymore. They just cook up great meals and they're, you know, all the innovation up until pandemic time was how to do a great tasting meal to go to solve the issue that you just mentioned about cold and not quite as tasty as sitting down um, and having it served straight out of the oven to you. So we'll see what happens. You know, your point about outdoor dining is also interesting, Pete, and I've seen a lot of talk. There was a Reddit thread where somebody was posting a story about a a European town that was closing down the, the whole entire center of its town to move tables and chairs into streets to allow restaurants to open. And somebody was like, can we do that in Nashville? And um, there's been a lot of discussion. You know, the, a lot of folks want to see less traffic downtown and more pedestrian friendly stuff. I have no idea if something like that could stick, but a lot of people are talking about it. Yeah. Um, close down the road, set up all the tables. Uh, although it seems like down the road, that might actually encourage more people milling around. <laughs> right. I don't know. I mean, there's so many dominoes, so many issues. I don't. Yeah, unintended yeah, consequences. Makes my head hurt. Well, and I yeah. asked. Um, I forget who it was. I asked uh, this question of um, whether or not the the era of ubiquitous options for dining out is that over? Like this whole culture that, uh, frankly, we've probably been spoiled by, particularly here in Asheville, of you know all of the choices for restaurants. I remember reading a report before all of this about how Asheville has way more restaurants than our population should theoretically support, mm. just because mm-hmm. we have so many people coming in that they support these other all of these options it's why you can go to a restaurant on a wednesday and not have to wait for a table uh we have so many restaurants in, uh in town but we support it with the tourist trade and now uh, like first off i think a lot of those restaurants close um mm-hmm. but uh i don't know if if anywhere sees the the kind of options that we've been accustomed to seeing um for dine-in experiences and that's that's sad that's i mean that's Mm -hmm. that's gonna be really sad because that was such a part of our culture particularly here yeah i agree we're gonna a a lot of those options are going to be stripped away pete you're absolutely right and you know the other big trend that i'm sure you've noticed and have talked about is in whatever economic sector we're talking about it seems like the big boys are going to come out Mm -hmm. winners in the end just because they've got so much more resources but yeah they're they're, they're publicly traded companies they can raise yep. money they can get capital they uh they've got you know reserve financing available to them um mm-hmm. and, and honestly they've got they've got systems that have been essentially perfected for economic reasons so right they can they, they've got they got more profit margin and uh in in a small business small restaurant if you got 20 tables you got to turn those tables over uh, you know, often to be profitable. And now we're basically saying, okay, take all those tables and cut it by 80%. You're going right. to, how do you turn those tables fast enough? I, I don't know. Yeah. And in a, in a, again, in thinking about a post pandemic Asheville, Pete, I think about on that issue, because Asheville has so strongly uh, had this vibe of buy local support independence, especially on the restaurant scene. My question is, uh, if some of these restaurants close, uh, will landlords start renting out their properties to chains, uh, especially in downtown Asheville? That's been really opposed by a vocal sector of our city. And so the, the next logical question for me is, how serious will Asheville be about that? Will Asheville City Council, which has 
flirted with the idea of some more strict zoning restrictions to try and keep out chains by, you know, you can control square footage and stuff. You can't just say you can't come do business here, but they can do some other things with zoning rules and stuff to try and keep big boxes out of downtown. Are we going to see moves like that to try and preserve independent restaurants? I don't know. It's a, it's a question for me. You have a quote from state lawmaker Brian Turner. I thought uh, this was a really good comment that he had. He said, there's been a lot of angst and criticism directed at the tourism industry as a whole. And I think we're going to see in the next 12 to 18 months what it's like to live without that industry. Um, I think a lot. And I think he's exactly right. I think a lot of people are going to get sort of a, a real view. And look, there are going to be pros and cons, just like most things in life, right? Benefits and negatives to uh, to seeing what this in, what this industry has actually meant for people and workers and businesses here. Uh, and are there enough people locally to support just the small independent restaurants? And are you going to be satisfied with having, you know, I don't know, 10 restaurants to choose from in downtown? Mm, <laughs> right. <laughs> Is that well, going to be would, enough? <laughs> yeah, I would. I would love to hear more of your thoughts on this because I, I didn't struggle with it, but we thought about this a lot in terms of tourism, because if you look at our local economy, the tourism sector in terms of cash, it is like a third uh, of our local economy. We've got healthcare is a big one. We've got manufacturing still. Mm-hmm. We have local governments and schools which employ a lot of people. But the tourism thread, as I, as we were reporting the story, keeps coming up over and over again because, just as you said at the beginning, it's it's just interwoven into the community and it supports so many things: restaurants, artists, um, just some of the vibrancy that you see at a downtown drum circle. Like it's just it, it's everywhere. It affects everything. So the fact that now it's essentially dead. Um, the Buncombe County Tourism Development Authority held its meeting earlier this week and said that local hotels are operating at less than a 10% occupancy, which is shocking. Um, this time last year, they were 80, 90%, especially the downtown hotels. So how are we, how are we going to survive? And then in talking to a couple of economists, uh, what they were telling me is they went and looked back at the 2007-8 recession and also the downturn in 2000-2001. And they were looking at what brought us back. Tourism was a key player in bringing back Asheville in both those cases, and especially in 2008. Um, Healthcare was a big one, but now that HCA owns Mission and they're actually cutting jobs, the outlook is grim for that actually being an economic engine coming out of this um, manufacturing is strong, but still kind of a low level player. It's been tourism Mm -hmm. that's brought us back and we'll see if it'll, if it's going to bring us back this time. And if people want it to be, you know, because we've had that debate. Yeah. So I'm thinking maybe a big street party in the summertime every year. (laughs) Bill share, maybe. Well, you raise a great question, man. It's like I have been starting to think back about, okay, how did we come out of this? How did Asheville come out of this before? And Bellshare was a key thing. Bringing people back into downtown was huge. What's the 2020 version of that, Pete? I'm I'm not sure if it's a festival, 
but I think there is a 2020 version. Another issue for the 70s and 80s was it was kind of an unintended thing, but we preserved a lot of our beautiful architecture. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2020, what does that mean for post-pandemic, Ashel? Well, just like when we were talking about restaurants blocking off people and putting them outside, our architecture is going to change. How is it going to change to help us come back? Um, and I'm, I'm, I've been trying to think in a couple of other sectors about how we came out of these severe downturns uh, in the 70s and 80s. And I haven't gone back to look all the way back to the, you know, the 30s to see how we got out of that. But something I want to. Well, I've I think it took about. from the 30s, from the Depression, when the city went bankrupt. Um, I don't think they came out of it until the 80s. I think that actually. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, that preserved the architecture very well. Uh, this is. There's a reason why, and I would say this during usual debates and arguments about, you know, the role the tourism industry plays and has in Asheville, which is that there's a reason why third world economies adopt tourism as an industry immediately as soon as they can, right? It's because Mm. it costs virtually nothing. If you've got a nice landscape to look at, right, just bring people in stick them in front of the landscape to look at and charge them money for it, right? Like that's the, mm-hmm. that's essentially the model. Come look at this stuff and yep. give us your money, right? And it's virtually free in that sense. Now, I understand there are costs associated with it, depending on especially like what kind of tourism you're attracting. And this gets into sort of the, the beer city, uh, the brewery aspect, where you guys reported that a lot of these smaller uh, breweries are going to be at the highest risk for closing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so what kind of tourism are you attracting? Does it require a lot of police presence? And that then requires a tax base? Because while government might be a big employer in Asheville, government is a tax consumer, not a tax producer. And so mm-hmm. if you're looking at, you know, multi-million dollar budget deficits, that's not going to get closed by adding more government jobs, right? So right. You, you've got to get the, uh, uh, you've got to get people to come here and, you know, stick them in front of a mountain, look at the mountain and give us your money. So how do you do that when people are afraid to leave their homes? Right? How do you, because <laughs> even if you lift the restrictions, then what people got to be willing to come here. Yes, that's exactly right. And, um, Harkening back to this TDA meeting this week, uh, John McKibben, one of the biggest hotel owners in Asheville, the owner of the Heiress right in the heart of downtown, the Aloft Hotel on Biltmore Avenue, was saying basically his formula was we either do tourism, which you just described, or you make goods and sell them. That's the way you build wealth in a community. You either bring people here who drop their money, open their wallets and drop their money, or you make things here and sell them. Uh, and because he's a hotelier, he wants people to come back. So <laughs> <All right. laughs> we'll see. But the, the it's so interesting because it's not just that easy anymore. You've got to convince people that we're safe, that not only are we welcoming, we're relaxing, we're free-spirited, whatever the message is for marketing. Now it's got, it's so closely connected with health. How do you make sure that people know they're going to be safe? Um, Because that's such a key concern. So you talked about uh, industries. You mentioned uh, artists, uh, the art galleries. This is going to be incredibly sad because these art galleries they work on really thin margins, and um, a lot of those are going to go out of business. Which means a lot of the artists aren't going to have places to sell their works. Um, You you guys covered music venues, and I hadn't even considered that. Yeah, I mean like. What is the future of that? Uh, 
if you can't pack a, a, a concert hall, you can't pack the peel, then what? Uh, like, h- how does, because that's where musicians, the whole music industry, the model shifted, right, at some point from selling albums mm-hmm. to selling shows. And now right. you, if you can't do shows, now what? Absolutely, man. And that was an important piece, not only because my wife is a musician, but also because, again, if you go back to the tourism folks, Pete, over the past two or three years, they had turned their attention from food. Um, our local TDA had marketed the heck out of Asheville as Foodtopia, a food destination, very successfully. Right. So they started turning to music, Asheville as a music destination. Look at our cool, varied scene and our great venues, like you said. I have no idea, just like restaurants, how these guys are going to make enough money to pay the level of acts that we've seen in Asheville over the past decade, Pete. I I don't know. You can't pack the peel. The Gray Eagle can only hold about 250 people to begin with. If you to social distance and maybe seat people to keep them from dancing together. I don't know how many people you let in, 50, 70. Um, I just don't know how they're going to work out the, their economic bottom line. Yeah. You mentioned the gray Eagle and you guys uh, talked with Russell Keith, the owner um, who said, uh, He's uh, was this reopening with more outdoor patio shows and mm-hmm. forehead thermometers to test people at the door. That is the new normal, I guess, where you'll be waiting in line and getting your uh, temperature read off of uh, off of your temple. Although mm-hmm. I would hate to be the guy, like have somebody behind me fail the thermometer test. <laughs> Standing in line with the guy for, you know, for an hour waiting to get into a show and then find out, oh, he just failed the the fever test and he's been breathing down my neck for an hour. Uh, uh, Finally, I wanted to hit this last area. And by the way, there's tons more of information and at ashvegas.com. This is a a very lengthy story. But the other category you all looked at was real estate. Uh, What did you find on the real estate front? That actually looks like a bright spot to me, Pete, right now. There will definitely be a downturn. There are fewer sales, um, but the prices have appeared to be unaffected. Um, And as we know, the red-hot real estate market of Asheville had cooled over the past three or four years, but prices were still increasing. Um, You know, the median cost of a home in Buncombe County and the city of Asheville were both continuing to tick upward, and that appears so far to be staying stable meanwhile a couple of the several of the realtors we talked to said they're still getting calls man from san francisco miami new york folks that are crammed into big urban centers that are seeing a lot of people tragically dying from this virus are wanting to get the heck out of town and move to a farm in madison county or haywood county so they seem to be buoyed by by that activity yeah um, I think the quote here uh, you have is, uh, if you're in a 700-square-foot apartment right now with two other people and you've been trapped there for a month, you can imagine you start fantasizing about open space. Yeah, I bet you do. Um, also, I will say, as I, uh, Christy and I, we live in an apartment building, and all the amenities got shut down. No gym, mm. yeah, no lounge. So all of the things that we've been paying for that were reasons why we chose the apartment, we don't have access to and haven't for now two months. So at wow. some, yeah, at some point... Like, 
if you don't allow us to use these amenities, we're not paying for them. We'll leave, right? Or you know, right. you need to start slashing rents, and then you have this whole domino effect uh, when the landlords aren't making enough money, uh, and then you know the the buildings go into disrepair. You can't charge as mm-hmm. much, and it's just this cycle begins. Um, I want to ask you the final question here: Was did you come away optimistic or discouraged after doing hmm. these interviews uh, and this story? That is a great question. My, my my initial response, Pete, is just to say, to talk about the response that I got, that I heard from people I talked to, emails, the social media response, and by far the response was, damn, that's, that's grim. That is not, that's not a uh, hopeful outlook. Um, I am generally an optimistic person, so, you know, I'm generally hopeful and optimistic that the creative types in Asheville, our folks in, in the city can figure a way out of this. But in in the reporting of this, the, the, the pain and the fallout on so many levels, personal, economic, is going to be really, really harsh for the next couple of years, I think. And then we'll see. Yeah, I will. I will say um, that and this is uh, uh, Congressman Patrick McHenry said this to me when I was talking with him a couple of weeks ago, that mm-hmm. the the mere act of asking what the future looks like is in and of itself an optimistic view. Mm-hmm. So um, I give that to yeah. you. Take it for whatever it's worth. I found some I bit it. of comfort in it because <laughs> I am I, 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 I try to. Well, I don't want to say I'm an optimist. I'm more of a false positive. I'm like all of the tests for coronavirus. <laughs> I'm a false positive. Right? I try to be optimistic, but I know deep down I'm a cynic. But uh, I, I, I kind of um, – I, I would like to think that uh, we are able to adapt and figure out ways to emerge um, and, uh, and and sort of cobble, uh, cobble together what a new normal that kind of resembles what used to be. Uh, Cause I think it would just be a shame to lose what we had, but um, I appreciate you making time and talking with us about the story. Great piece. It's at ashvegas.com. Jason Sanford is the founder of said site. And uh, this article is called the long road back that he wrote with Sally Keston from AVL watchdog. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Pete, so much. Take care. You too. You heard Jason say earlier that the real estate industry has actually been doing uh, fairly well, considering the circumstances that we are all in. Uh, And uh, so if that is giving you some optimism for maybe thinking about buying or selling your home, uh, then please take down this phone number, 333-4483. That is the phone number for Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Their website is mountainhomehunt.com, mountainhomehunt.com. Rowena Patton outsells 99% of real estate agents in the state of North Carolina. And um, with uh, Rowena Patton and her team, your search does not have to be postponed. She's offering walking tour videos. She's actually been doing this since 2007, just like the real thing. So you don't have to leave your home. The people who um, are uh, looking to buy a home, they're not going to be walking through your place. Uh, and she has a lot of experience, obviously over a decade doing these kinds of videos, which means you're going to get great videos, right? This is one of the reasons why she's been the top seller for so long. So start out with a video consult with Rowena, 333-4483. She's the only agent I would call buying or selling. You should too. 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com and start packing. 
Yesterday, the governor of North Carolina held a uh, another one of his briefings, and uh, Kim King from WLOS asked him about the logjam of unemployment claims uh, that uh, news operations, by the way, are fielding these phone calls. This has been going on for weeks because people get so frustrated when they try to call the unemployment system, trying to either get somebody on the line or trying to log into the system. And when uh, the uh, unemployment system uh, was getting inundated with these overwhelming numbers of people, it just crashed everything. And then people can't get through to anybody, they can't file a claim, they can't uh, get into the system, and so then they start calling news operations. I've seen reporters on social media uh, commenting regularly over the last few weeks about how they've become sort of the de facto sounding board for people uh, who can't get through at the state levels for uh, for unemployment claims. So uh, I got this from a listener that the um, unemployment insurance claims on April 2nd were just over 300,000. 27 days later, it's now almost a million. There were all, I mean, think about that. We are, we are about one out of five people unemployed in North Carolina right now. And uh, both of these numbers come from press reports. So here's what Kim King asked Governor Cooper uh, about uh, this unemployment breakdown, the unemployment system breakdown, and what's being done. Good afternoon, Governor. Uh, I'm calling from Asheville, WLOS. We have received so many emails from people who are unemployed. They cannot get through on the 800 numbers, both the unemployment benefits 800 number for North Carolina and the federal CARES number. How many people do you have taking calls, and what is your plan to try to help these folks? They are crying to us for help. It is unacceptable for a person who is unemployed to not be able to get through. And I have ordered the Employment Security Commission to increase the number of people who are handling telephone calls and increase the capability online to to take uh, claims. We have uh, getting close to 400,000 people who have been paid claims and getting close to a billion dollars having gone out already. But there are a lot more people who need to get paid and to, to, to have their calls answered and to make sure that their claims are taken care of. Every one of these claims represents a family on the edge and they need to be attended to as quickly as possible, and we're going to see to this. This is a problem that's nationwide because you have to remember this is uh, something they're dealing with a hundred times the amount of claims that they had before, but they're making progress. They're putting more people uh, in the call centers, and they're going to continue to push into next week to hopefully get all of these claims uh, taken care of soon and to get people the money as quickly as they can get it to them. Appreciate you guys joining us today, and uh, we look forward to coming back again and updating you. All right, and that was the end of the governor's press conference there, and um, Kim King from WLOS got the last question uh, there about this unemployment. So what was his answer? That, uh, yes, the system's been overwhelmed. They've paid out 400,000 claims. They've increased call center uh, staffing, and uh, they've increased the uh, ability to take claims online. All right, again, I'm withholding a lot of criticism because I don't think anybody could have been prepared for what we're experiencing. You're talking about a system 
that is used to processing, you know, a couple hundred claims or something a day, and now it's having to process tens of thousands of claims a day. That's just not, it's not realistic to think that they could ramp up that quickly. But this is the uh, this is the governor's problem to address, right? This is why he asked for the job, ostensibly, to put him in charge. So when things like this happen, he's the guy to lead the response. So first off, he did give us a number, which is rare, but he gave us a number. 400,000 claims have been paid out, he said, but there are almost a million. So that's we're like not even at halfway. So they're still they're still way behind on this. I will point out here, uh, and I've got some information from inside uh, the Capitol, that um, some folks are getting help from the Department of uh, Employment Services, uh, DES, right? They they are getting uh, help. Obviously, the governor said 400,000 people have gotten their claims checks. Almost a billion dollars went out the door to them. So there are folks that are getting help, but they have to get through to get the help, right? They've got to get through to the uh, on the phone line or they got to get through online. So if you're not even getting through, then you're not getting the help. And this was the this was the initial problem. So here is some advice, okay? Call your state senator, maybe your house of representatives member, call your state lawmakers. Because a lot of the staffers in these offices can get access to the DES staff when you can't. They can follow up and say, hey, checking on, you know, Pete Callender's claim. Just got a list of names here. What do you got? So call your state lawmakers. They can maybe help move stuff along. Um, Of course, I guess if everybody does, then (laughs) then it all bogs down again. Remember, the first the first um, complaints were coming in that that folks couldn't um, they couldn't reach anybody for the uh, through the phone and they couldn't access the website. Um, now, if you get through on the website uh, and you file a claim, now it keeps saying status pending and the status has been pending for like a month. That's a problem. Um, and people are waiting days, four or five days to hear back from anybody once they uh, put a claim in. Could you imagine you're waiting four to five days here we are, you know, May 1st, rent checks are due, bills are due. Um, this is on Governor Cooper. Again, I understand the overwhelming nature of uh, the surge in unemployment. I understand. Um, I'm not, and, and I'm not dragging him too hard over this, but at some point this has to get fixed. It, people cannot wait much longer. Um, if he tries to blame... And maybe he does. Maybe he tries to blame the the General Assembly for this. And maybe people believe him. I don't know. But it was the governor's decision to bring in call center employees, right? This is what he just mentioned in that answer. This was his decision. He pulled people from other agencies and stuck them on the phones taking these calls. But here's the thing. These people don't know what the rules are for unemployment insurance, Right, you hand him a script, say answer these phones, but they don't actually know how to answer people's questions on some of this stuff. So yes, you could add, you add more people to staff the phone lines, and that's a that that's that's a good step, but that's not the solution. Um, all you've done, as it was conveyed to me by somebody inside the Capitol, that uh, that you add more points of intake 
but the processing point still remains the same. They described it like a funnel. You've increased the top of the funnel, but the bottom hasn't changed, right? Everybody is still having to go through that bottom point, the processing point. Yeah, great, you got more applications, but now you're just stacking them into an ever-growing pile of claims. There was another thing that Cooper said uh, at this uh, press conference yesterday about um, keeping us safe uh, before reopening, and that that would be uh, it has to be part of the uh, uh, the equation, which when he said it, it kind of struck me as concerning. Again, I'm trying not to be hypercritical of the governor. I know he's got a very difficult job here, okay? Um, and he's trying to prepare, you know, the citizens. He's trying to prepare media. And uh, you want to prepare folks for, like, hey, if you keep pushing for these things to happen and then we open and things are going to be bad and he doesn't want to get blamed, he's been trying to warn you, right? So he's trying to prepare us. Speaking of which, by the way, if you're... If you're thinking, man, I need to be better prepared for this kind of an emergency, like all of a sudden now a lot of these preppers don't seem so crazy, right? Well, uh, Old Grouch's military surplus, downtown Clyde on Main Street, the shop is closed because of COVID, but they're online. Oldgrouch.com is the website, oldgrouch.com. And uh, here's the deal. If you want some information about how to be prepared, what do you need? What Like if you're if you're thinking about I uh, need to uh, put together a go bag. Do you know what a go bag is? Do you know what should go in it? What goes in the go bag? Send a text to the owner of Old Grouch's Military Surplus. His name is Tim. Great guy. Um, very down to earth. He he uh, he can give you great advice. And like the, the piece of advice, like he said, people were asking him initially was like, do I need to get MREs? And he said, no, probably not. You know, rice and beans, dry goods, that kind of thing. You should be fine. So um, that's where you need to start. So Obviously, you can go deeper down that uh, that path of prepping and all. But for folks who are who are just starting and need some guidance on this, send him a text. Here's his number, 565-2497. That's 828-565-2497. Text to Tim uh, and get some advice. But also, you can place an order with him from uh, his website, oldgrouch.com. You can ask about an item uh, that you see at the website, oldgrouch.com. And if you're looking for something, can't find it, either at his site or anywhere, ask him. He probably can't find it for you because that's what he does. He's been doing it for years. Old Grouch's military surplus at oldgrouch.com. As government officials consider relaxing the lockdown of the national economy, there still remains concern among many in the population that the risks of dying from COVID-19 are too high and that government decisions authorizing a return to work are premature. Putting aside the trauma and associated pain and suffering from contracting the virus, the central concern is whether people would likely lose their lives by returning to work or going to a restaurant, or even visiting the hair salon or gym. At the same time, the economic costs of the lockdown are imposing catastrophic and long-term damage to the national economy. The current situation, this is, by the way, a piece by Lucian Pugliaresi, who is president of the Energy Policy Research Foundation in Washington, D.C., but he also served on the National Security Council staff during the Reagan administration. And he wrote this piece. Um, I don't know where I got this from, actually. The Hill, I think, is where I got this from. Oh, I'm sorry. No, uh, I got this from RealClearMarkets.com. 
He says the current situation, as Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York has pointed out, is not sustainable, right? We cannot eliminate all deaths from this disease. It is here, it is killing people, and it will continue to kill people. Until we find a cure or a vaccine, this is, it's just like any other disease that kills people. So, as we try to restore economic growth, it's time to evaluate what strategies at the margin are likely to provide the biggest payoffs in reducing individual risk. That's what we're talking about, right? Collective behavior, of course, increasing or decreasing the rate of transmission of the virus, like that can, you know, the distancing and stuff, that can obviously alter the number of fatalities, right? This is the primary reason that all of our public health policy is focused on enforcing social isolation. But extreme social isolation is costly. He goes on to say individual risk of death will shift down as we learn more about the disease and become better informed on what measures are most effective for reducing transmission. And we find out, you know, what therapies work best for those who do get infected. He says there's a lot of discussion about the fatality rate. What are the chances of dying if we become infected? That's really what people want to know. And we're still in data collection phase. And I recognize we are not a patient people. I get it, right? But uh, we have to collect the data, and then we need to make an assessment of risk. That's really what this is about. People are scared and freaked out and locked up and locked down because they don't know the risks. We don't know the risks. What is the chance that I'm going to catch it, and what are the chances that I'm going to die from it? That's really what we're trying to assess. But since we have little good data, he says, on the probability of becoming infected, we're not in a position to make an informed judgment on joint risk, which is the chance of getting infected and dying. We do, however, have a pretty accurate estimate of deaths from COVID-19. We do have that. Data on the deaths in Italy and New York confirm that for the population under the age of 50, the risk of death is close to zero. Under the age of 50... The chance of death is close to zero, and then it rises as you get older, right? Old, you got comorbid, uh, comorbidities, um, healthcare providers, um, nursing homes, right? These are people and places that increase the risk. If you work in the healthcare industry and you're working around COVID patients, your risk goes up, right? If you live in a nursing home, your risk goes up. If you have heart disease, your risk goes up. For New York and New Jersey, 20 to 40% of the deaths occur in nursing homes. What should CDC and other government agencies do to place this risk in perspective for us? This is really what we require. And I keep saying this when it comes to our governor. Like, I don't like being treated like a child. Tell me what the risks are. What are the chances? And then I'll make an assessment. If you tell me like, okay, Pete, well, um, considering your history, your age and what you do for a living, we think your risk is about 70% that you're going to catch it. And then the risk is about uh, 80% that you'll die from it. If those are my risks, I'm probably going to never leave my apartment ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there are things that I can do if I have to leave, right? There are things that I will do to try to protect myself as best I can, at least until we get some treatments and vaccines and they start driving that number down, that risk number down. Many of us are now under extreme isolation measures following government edicts. 
Most of us have refrained from engaging in any social activities and traditional commercial transactions. And even if restrictions are relaxed, concern over the risk is going to make revival of the national economy difficult. Cable news and media sensationalism have generated a perceived risk that is largely unwarranted. This is true. And unfortunately, this feeds a lot of the dismissiveness from people who are like, it's just the flu. It's not just the flu. And uh, it has killed more than uh, the flu has killed now uh, and pneumonia combined. So uh, uh, it's now uh, uh, got a higher death count on it than flu and pneumonia. So it's not just the flu. But um, because of the media coverage, which, by the way, this is what media does on everything, right? If you're not scared, they're not doing their job. So uh, this is largely unwarranted. For the population under the age of 65, the crude death rate, statistically, even with COVID-19, has not substantially altered the risk of dying. A common sense approach would suggest placing additional resources and focuses, uh, a focus rather, on the most vulnerable people. Strict isolation and increased care for those who have comorbidities. Also, you want to ramp up development of therapies to treat the illness. We need to directly address the occupational risk for healthcare workers, more protection, shorter shifts, more compensation, for example. But more importantly, we need to do these things not just to improve prospects for survivability of the nation's residents, but to promote confidence that it is safe to return to normal routines. Okay, this is what Governor Cooper, I think, was was getting at, but pretty poorly, in one of the questions he was asked and how he answered it in his news conference yesterday. He was asked about people that are ignoring the stay-at-home executive order, or the SHIO for short. Here's what he said. I have concerns when people are blatantly ignoring rules because it can cost lives. This is truly a matter of life and death. And when people do things to transfer the virus to other people and cause confusion, then that's highly concerning. So we, we believe that people, for the most part, will continue abiding by the order and will help us as we work through these phases uh, to get back to where we want to be with our new normal and people back at work and children back at school. I do see that for us in the future. We need, though, to make sure that people feel safe doing those things because you can remove all restrictions, but a lot of people are going to still have concerns about their safety. So if they know that we are relying on the science, the evidence, the facts, and that we are basing our decision on those so that their safety is of the top priority, then people are going to feel better about moving forward. And I think that that will make our economy even better because the people are going to be with us. And that's why we are using these three phases to make sure people understand that we're looking at at the science. All right. I, I think I understand what he was trying to say because it's along the lines of what this guy Pugliaresi is trying is is saying in his piece that you want people to be confident that it's safe to resume normal activities and and commerce, uh, but what he actually ended up outlining was a completely uh, subjective and uh, untenable standard, which is uh, to say that 
Uh, we can't reopen unless people are confident that they're going to be safe. You can't reopen unless people feel safe. And that is not a standard we can hit. It, it just isn't ever, ever that you, we should not be basing reopening decisions on whether or not people feel safe. Doesn't matter if they feel safe. We reopen. Eventually, they will feel safe at different times because everybody's an individual. They will feel confident to go one place versus another at a certain time and not this time and whatever. And people will make those decisions. Here's the key. We need to know the risk. It is essential to convey to the public the true nature of the risk. Okay? Me knowing that you've got a three-phase plan and the three T's that you're watching, Governor, does not matter to me. I don't care. I want to know the risk. That's all that matters to me. What's the risk? CDC should publish risk estimates for age groups, including the joint chance of getting infected and dying. Give the public hard data on the joint risk of contracting and dying from the virus. Once the public understands that the risk is low, that modest measures can reduce the base level of risk and that many normal activities of day-to-day -day life remain well within their personal risk tolerance, the public and a large segment of the workforce more than likely will head back to work. If your website is not really working very well, um, then get a hold of my friend Schaefer Smith. Schaefer Smith uh, he can help you with your website, improve your website, setting it up, whatever. It can be overwhelming. Uh, let Schaefer Smith Design help you with logos, graphics, photos, an online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance and security. For professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith Design. Make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers and you so you can adapt quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. All right, and finally, May 2nd is Naked Gardening Day, and LawnStarter.com says that the best place, temperature-wise and weather-wise, to be gardening naked is Ogden, Utah, just based on the weather forecast. And Asheville comes in as the 19th best place to garden naked, um, just based on the weekend's weather forecast. That's all this is about, LawnStarter.com. Thanks so much for joining me for the program today. Stay safe. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.